At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey Blunders, it's Sean, and I am here to introduce a bonus episode of the show, an interview that we are bringing you uh, that didn't fit into the main show because we have a lot of stuff that's actually coming this week, which I'll tease in a second. Uh, This is an interview with David Bruckner, who has a new film coming out starring Rebecca Hall called The Night House. It is a traditional sort of haunted house ghost story with a lot of surprising twists, and I know that you're going to uh, enjoy this interview uh, before you head in to go see the movie, because I definitely think you have to check it out. Um, Thank you for watching us here on YouTube. If you are checking out the video aspect of the show, make sure you hit subscribe and turn on your notifications. We want to make sure that you keep up to date with all of our fun Real Blend content. And then in addition to uh, this episode, which I was telling you guys about, we have uh, David Lowry, who directed The Green Knight, is going to be part of the main show this week, and then Amber Seeley, who has a film with Elijah Wood called No Man of God, is going to be dropping on Friday. So a ton of Real Blend content coming your way. But it starts right now with David Bruckner, the director of The Night House, here on Real Blend. But I have to start here, just with this sort of two, two-part question, because as I was watching Night House, uh, you know, with a character like Beth, who is such a skeptic, I, I was curious if you believe in ghosts and if you have to believe in ghosts to tell an effective ghost story. I, I do not know what I believe. <laughs> I do not know if uh, consciousness is a passive phenomenon that sits on top of a deterministic universe and uh, we're all just particles swirling around or if there is some kind of greater meaning that can be pulled from all of our experiences. I think what made... Nighthouse kind of frightening to me, which was that it interrogated the idea that there may not be ghosts, that mm-hmm. there may not be an afterlife at all. I think that's what really kind of chilled me. Yeah, that letter that she gets uh, sent is <laughs> it's unnerving. The letter's pretty great. It sticks with you, yeah. <laughs> yes, it does. David, the, uh, the horror genre is so interesting because I feel like it kind of comes at us in waves. There were sort of the monster slasher movies of the 80s and then kind of like the whodunits of the 90s, like the screams. And I know you did last summer. And then like the early 2000s, we started getting kind of the torture porn. But I'm like right now as a fan of this genre, I can't quite 
get my finger on where horror is or what what we're like what sort of wave we're in right now i'm sort of curious what kind of place do you think the genre is in right now i mean i think it's always really hard to see the current moment you know in general i mean after the fact who knows what will kind of materialize in the trends but i think we're coming off of 10 amazing years in horror where i feel like uh, to put it simply a bit more of an art house approach uh was embraced by more mainstream audiences it's not that Horror films weren't always metaphorical, that they didn't always have, you know, deeper meanings or, you know, symbolic interpretations. It's just that uh, there, I think, were a handful of marquee films that emerged that um, added a, a willingness for the audience to see prestige in the genre, you know, and, uh, and drama in the genre in some ways. And so um, I think that's allowed for a lot more experimentation. And, uh, you know, who knows where we're at right now? When you refer to those films, are you, are you talking about like the the Ari Asters of the you know the Hereditaries and the Midsommars, like that kind of like more art house that got you know start more popularity than they would have gotten I think 10, 15, 20 years ago? Absolutely. I mean, I think Hereditaries uh, masterclass. You know, I think movies like It Follows, The Babadook, oh, yeah. Get Out. You know, um, I think uh, The Witch. Uh, there are so many more in the last ten years that really had an impact and um, and just invited audiences to see stuff a little different. There's also a, a lot of conversation about post horror, which were horror films that took on the tone, mm -hmm. the feel, the vibes of horror, but were um, a, a bit more meta or didn't um, kind of clarify the genre elements in a really overt way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I have an appreciation for that stuff. I also like you know, also like to play the tropes and, and, and really enjoy reveling in them at the same time. But, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think people are seeing the genre in a different way now. And it's, it's really exciting in that, in, in this moment. Oh, I want you to elaborate on, uh, on playing the tropes because one of the, one of the fun things I think that you get to do is, um, rely on technology. I think it plays an important role in how you, uh, unnerve the audience at different times during Nighthouse uh, with very modern things like text messages uh, you know, and and um, stereos coming on or even cell phone photos, you know, they are things that as I was watching them play out, I was like, oh, this is really cool because it's it's bringing the horror up to the sword sort of contemporary uh, time period. Did you have a lot of fun sort of figuring out ways to make modern tools scary and use the tropes that way? I, well, one of the things that I think you're always looking for in horror is is some element of the familiar. Like I even find the word familiar kind of frightening, you know, it's the idea of a, a recurrent set of events, images, or ideas that you, uh, that in one way or another, make up the world that is expected around you. And if you can paint a picture made of those elements in some way or another, um, then when things change or are altered or when something sinister intrudes upon them, then it almost corrupts, you know, areas of safety around us in some, in some sense. So, um, uh, yeah, a lot of Nighthouse was just um, trying to put the characters in, you know, the experience of being in your house at night, you know, getting a text message in the dark. How do, you know, how does the glow of the phone feel? You know, I mean, how, how does the text ring, uh, you know, the chimes stand out in the silence of the house, but it's just that wood creaks and crickets outside necessarily. And it's like, we've all been in that moment before. We've all had that weird sleepy state maybe our stereos don't turn on on their own, but we can get pretty close to what that might feel like if it were to actually happen. Nothing more terrifying when something like that happens when you're in the shower too. Uh, this oh, has happened yeah. to me once or twice, but like I'll get into the shower and then my dog will just start barking his head off. And when I'm home alone 
and it's like all right great what are we gonna what are we gonna do now in this situation we have a, we have pretty pretty scary shower beat in the movie it's always uh it's always the sound that's left over when the water goes away uh <laughs> something is sort of living there underneath that you didn't notice before exactly whenever my alexa goes off because it hears something i always think well this is how it ends it ends with the sound of Alexa. Um, keep, That's a whole other it's set of going off right yeah. now. Uh, it's literally going off right now because I said her name. Uh, keeping that idea going of the familiar and the tropes, you know, a lot of times we talk with filmmakers sort of about uh, different tropes that are familiar that they want to avoid. But in, in horror in particular, there are some things that as fans, we really love and we want to sort of see in certain movies. I'm curious, are there familiar beats that uh, you you really want to put in a movie like this just because you love them so much, no matter, you know, you, you don't want to avoid them. You, you want to embrace them, even if you have seen them before. Yeah, I, th- I think we, you know, we try to put a little bit of a different spin on them s- somewhat. But uh, but yeah, I mean, when you get into like haunt tropes, this is, you know, it's a haunted house film in the most, in the simplest way you might describe it in that, in that way. But uh, it's also a uh, bit of a gothic romance it's also a psychological thriller it's a little unclear what's in the mind of the protagonist and what's actually overtly happening in some kind of external way all that stuff's pretty tried and true you know um and uh the space that you get in you know things that go bump in the night has been so well explored in literature and film over the years that if you tried to completely innovate and do something totally brand new, you'd probably bump into something that had been done before. Mm-hmm. And not just that, but also the audience has an expectation that these things are going to happen. You know, I mean, we actively want you to think of this as a haunted house. You know, we have a, a shot that was rather hard to get the film where uh, we had to get a boat out in the middle of this lake in our very busy schedule to, you know, get, uh, ex- you know, a, a, a frame of the house right at sunset, right as twilight set in that I knew was going to be on the poster. I knew was going to be an image that was played in the trailers. It was going to be the iconic image of the night house that sets an expectation of isolation and haunted ideas and fills the audience um, with potential energy where all that's concerned. So in a weird way, you're in a game where, you know, the, the, the audience knows you're going to do things. And, and then the question becomes, how are you going to play your hand? Uh, in what ways are you going to kind of dish this stuff out in a way that might break their expectations, but you're kind of relying on the expectation that something will happen. Um, so in that sense, the familiarity of the tropes is fun. It's good. Like there's a sense of what's it going to be. And you can hopefully to some degree or another kind of measure that expectation and, and alter it or change it. Go left when they expect you to go right. For sure. Uh, David, it's no surprise that Rebecca is an extremely gifted actress. Um, but one of the things I want to touch on in terms of the way that you work with her is that there are a lot of times where she has to hold down a scene completely by herself. And I yeah. find that I would think that that would be incredibly challenging. I was just hoping you can walk me through your process of you two collaborating um, on the days of those scenes in particular to get out of her what you needed, essentially. Yeah, well, uh, we didn't totally know a high wire act for all of us and especially for rebecca um and she's completely fearless i mean she's she you know early on i thought uh don't worry you know i, I tried to reassure her like it doesn't look right i'll uh you know I'll, I'll i'll make sure and get a different angle or something like that and she said no you know i make a fool out of myself for a living it's no worry you know i'll just go <laughs> for it um and uh we didn't really know how to have her react to nothing in a way that was reliable, you know, would she just pantomime the whole thing or would we bring another actor in and have her sort of work with somebody and then take that person away and then see what would happen necessarily. I even brought a mannequin into the room at one point. 
And uh, she laughed a lot of that off. And we just hit a place where we did a very, very loose blocking kind of run through on what it might be. And then um, we didn't have a lot of time either. And we just had to kind of go for it. Hmm. And so a lot of that is, you know, Rebecca really, really just dropping in and pretending it's just, it's make believe in the simplest sense. Um, that and a handful of gags, you know, different, uh, compression gags and air gun gags and things like that to kind of accentuate <laughs> specific moments. But you two have been working on this project for a while. You're both producers of it. Was it a story that you were sort of workshopping together? It was, uh, it was a movie that it was a script written by Ben Collins and Luke Petrowski that, mm. um, uh, who are good friends of mine that I got to, uh, producers at Phantom Four, Keith Levine and David Goyer. And then uh, we sought out Rebecca and Rebecca came on. So, gotcha. um, so there was development period on the script, uh, before she came on. And then when she came on, uh, we took it one step further. And I think a, a few months after that, we were, we were leaping into production. Gotcha. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You know, I speaking about uh, Rebecca, I, I really think that a great performance in a horror movie, is, it's really such a beautiful thing. And, and obviously she just does an incredible job. And I'm sort of curious, does an actor need to bring uh, maybe something to, to this genre, to a film like this, that maybe would never be required in any other genre? And when you think of like the great horror performances, whether it's, you know, Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn or, or Jamie Lee Curtis or whatever the case may be, is there an X factor uh, in a performance for this genre that it would never be required on, in any other type of film? I, 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 well, I think you have to, there's a certain, you just have to go for it. Like there's absolutely a level of um, understanding of the genre and a letting go of oneself to some degree or another. I think you have to have, I think a performer has to have faith that the gags are an extension of the themes that they are also exploring um, because the gags are time consuming and they're ridiculous. And they're, you know, once everybody's covered in blood and you have, a prosthetic element in the room and you're doing weird lighting effects and you're in a really awkward position to get a particular shot. Uh, it, it, 
kind of feels like a big embarrassing thing for a whole bunch of adults to be doing together, especially for a living. <laughs> you know, so if you don't have some some like faith that, that is leading to some productive end, if you don't understand what it's for, I think something can get lost. And you certainly can't find a performance in the midst of things that are, you know, pretty technical. Horror is especially technical. And um, you know, I think a lot of people at face value think of it as a lower brow genre or something. You can spend less money on it. You know, you don't have to pay the same attention to detail. And then they get, I've seen people get thrown into horror shoots and just get blown away that it's a lot harder than a, than a drama in certain senses, because you have gags, you have atmosphere, you're shooting all night most of the time. Um, and, uh, uh, and the level of intensity of experience and emotion is so high. You've got to get there all the time. So I think a general understanding for an actor where those things are concerned is, is um, you know, is very, very special. Um, whether exploring trauma, grief, depression, anxiety, you know, the myriad of topics that we kind of tackle in the genre, whether that pulls from an actor's personal experience in some way or provides some supply for them, uh, ultimately that's kind of their business. You know, I don't really tap into that too much. We kind of talk about human experience in a general sense. And, uh, you know, if somebody wants to share or tell me what reserve, you know, they're pulling from, you know, they can, but I find, you know, most people that are really wielding it um, retain a kind of privacy when they do the work, which is pretty when, fascinating. When you mention so many scenes while you're filming kind of seeming ridiculous, which obviously they never end up coming across that way in the film, but you can look at a, at a film and sort of see that because you have the knowledge of what goes on behind the scenes. When you watch like the great horror movies of our time, do you ever see moments where you're like, oh, I bet that was ridiculous on set. Like it's great <laughs> in the film, but you look at it and go, that had to be just really stupid when they were shooting. Oh yeah. And in fact, you might look at it and off given what you're looking at you know um because you know how these things come together also sometimes the style of how something is depicted is born from utility you know that was always the case it's like in french new wave when they stopped you know shooting reverse shots the, the jump cut was born because they were running out of film and they just decided continuity wasn't an issue i mean you see this all the time in horror where the way a, a, a prosthetic is filmed um, or a particular um, haunted element is depicted is completely rooted in what you can do to pull off the gag necessarily. And then that mm -hmm. just becomes the flavor of it. And so, yeah, you identify those things a little bit more, which is why I think if you make these movies and a filmmaker comes along and like fools you, um, it's really delectable to see it's when awesome. somebody can do that, yeah. Yeah, the one thing that ruins it is a lot of times we'll read these behind the scenes, you know, growing up reading Fangoria or something like that, and you'd see uh, a, a deep dive into a movie that really got underneath your skin. And then you see a, a, a photograph from behind the scenes and you see where the camera was or where the crew was. And I'm just like, ah, damn it, it just deflated the whole thing for me. You well, know, I remember I like the, sh the shots of like when like, you know, uh, even <laughs> recently, like Pennywise hanging out and like, you know, the shots of him laughing with Bill Hader on set. And you're like, oh, <laughs> That's, I wish I hadn't seen that. Yeah, that's not fun. Yeah, yeah you know, it's literally the classic image of the monster with the head off, like smoking a cigarette off to the side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, that always breaks the illusion. Yeah. Um, speaking of illusions, and I don't want to give away the specifics as to why this is, but there's a um, a reason in Nighthouse why you have to cast uh, Rebecca lookalikes. Uh, yeah. What is that process like? Do you put out a call for people who look like Rebecca Hall? Honestly, it was just when we were in development uh, back before Rebecca had even signed on when I was just thinking about it um, and uh, and she was reading the script. I just started uh, looking around and finding people that could be uncannily in the same category. You know, we didn't want we didn't want to like find an exact double necessarily. And um, so uh, uh, 
yeah, I, I, I had actually just, uh, come across Stacy Martin's work, um, who, who I'd seen in a few movies and, uh, was really just blown away by what she could do. She also felt like a, like a younger Rebecca in some ways, you know, maybe by 10 years. And there was an interesting undercurrent there uh, mm-hmm. that given, given the stakes and context of their particular scenes, the thought could be pretty interesting. And, uh, but yeah, we looked at a few different people that we thought could double for her. David, I wanted to switch over for a second to The Ritual because it honestly truly is one of my favorite horror movies of the last 20 years. And, and it's a movie that I actually find people are still discovering and coming up to me and saying, oh my God, I watched this movie last night. I'd never seen it before. Have you seen it? Because um, with Netflix, a lot of times you never really know when it comes out. So people think maybe it's a movie that they just discovered within the last week. I'm sort of curious because it's on Netflix, are you still finding people are still discovering that? Because it's, it's truly remarkable. And I love whenever people come up to me and go, have you seen this movie called The Ritual? I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's the platform's bizarre in that way because yes, it still feels like it's just happening and it's been a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, so people, I, I don't have a very uh, active social media presence in any way, but anytime I kind of tap in, I'm like, it, it really does. Uh, it fuels me to keep going to find that there are people that really connect to it, you know? And uh, I don't think there's a lot of horror films out there about uh, guys in their mid thirties approaching middle age and, you know, dealing with like masculinity and crisis necessarily. And so it was something that I relate to quite a bit. And uh, uh, so, yeah, it seems to have found, um, it seems to find new audience and, um, and, and a lot of people coming back to it uh, even in the last few years. So a lot of, a lot of rewatches and, and, and conversations around it in that regard. Can I just follow uh, up and ask where the, I'm sorry, Sean. I no, you, gonna, no. I, I was just going to ask where the, where the design for that monster came from. Cause I'm always curious about different monster designs. And that one in particular is, is one of my more favorite over the last, uh, you know, period of, of monster films we've gotten. Uh, Keith Thompson is a total, is a genius. You know, I mean, this guy's up there. Uh, he'll be one of the great creature designers. Um, and uh, I mean, he, in some ways I think, I mean, he's done a lot of a, a lot of work across different mediums. So, I mean, he's got a huge fan base. But he was somebody whose work I was familiar with. And when I got the job, I just kind of hunted him down and said, "Hey, I'm doing a movie, and I've got Andy Serkis is producing, and it's based on this really awesome um, British horror novel. What do you think?" And he said, "Sure." And uh, we tossed back and forth on the you know ideas of what it could be for a while, and he probably did probably 10 kind of core explorations. And that was one of them. And I just, it was up on the wall and we just kept coming back to it and it was crazy. And I'd never seen anything like it It was completely insane. And one of the things that Keith taught me about design was that um, fascinating design has complexities that refer within a first glance. Uh, because there's almost nothing new under the sun. So it, it's sometimes you look at something and you think you understand it. And then if it draws you deeper, you understand it in a different way moments later. And if you're playing with the human form in some way, you can get a really uncanny balance in that sense. And um, that's especially useful if you're doing a movie that has a big monster reveal, because monster reveals are classically, it's just a letdown. Yeah. You know, if you put a bunch <laughs> of people in a room and there's something mysterious beating on the door on the outside, when you finally in the third act open the door, on some level or another, it's like you can't show them anything that they're not going to kind of go, oh, really? It's just a 
spider. It's just a, <laughs> you know, it's just a giant moose. Like, why have I been watching this? You know, and it's uh, so true. It's so true. It it, it's, it can bum you out immensely. Uh, I mean, every animal, uh, every phylum <laughs> or species has been explored in monster form in some way or another. Every kind of uh, you know different facet of alien design has been explored. So it's like everything gets categorized really quickly. But if you can see something sort of suffer that beat and then find yourself questioning, like, wait a minute, I don't know what I'm seeing and I'm drawn deeper into it, then, then, then maybe you can offer a bit more to the experience. So that was, that was a little bit, uh, you know, our approach to, to, to that's awesome. Lower. That's beautiful. Yeah. I want to find the audience member who was watching Jaws for the first time and when they saw Bruce and they were like, that's it? That's it? It's a shark? <laughs> it's just that shark? It's not such a, it's not such a big deal. Uh, uh, it's right there in the title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have spent a lot of time on the show, obviously, over the past 18 months discussing films getting delayed. Um, and you had a unique experience in the fact that this movie played at Sundance all the way back in 2020, um, and then you had to sit on it. And I'm curious just um, if that made it that much harder that some people saw it and you kind of knew how it was going to play and then had to wait. I mean, you know, I think the pandemic was so surreal for all of us that it just overshadowed any of that. I mean, mm. it was for me, um, and I think I speak for a lot of the crew, you know, a lot of my collaborators kind of a, a big step up for us. Uh, been to Sundance a few times, never premiered a movie, you know, first Friday night there and then made a big sale. And then somebody like Searchlight comes to pick it up and gets behind it. And you go, you know, wow, we're going to get a theatrical like 2000 screen release um, mm. here in a few days. And uh, so that was a bit of a game changer for us in terms of what's possible, how many people are going to see the work, maybe what we get to do next. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then the whole world shut down. So I, I think at that point it was like, it was almost like movies didn't matter for a while. And then slowly we all started coming back to life. And, uh, I don't know, it's surreal now to have it come out. It's been a while for us. Um, but, uh, it's, it would have been surreal for me anyway to have, you know, this many people seeing it. And I'm just excited to see what, what they will think. Yeah. David, you've worked both in, in long, long form and short form storytelling. You look at, you know, your feature films with this and the ritual. And then obviously you did work on, on Creepshow and VHS and Southbound. I'm sort of curious, do you have a preference one way or the other? Do you like to have more time to flesh out a story or do you kind of like the challenge of what can I do in 10 minutes kind of thing? I mean, bite-sized horror is so fun because you yeah. can get in late, you can get out early. You know, <laughs> you don't, you're not burdened <laughs> with third act explanations and sort of wrapping it all up in a bow for a very broad and complicated and uh, uh, varied audience. Um, you can also be kind of meaner and more abstract. Um, you can go a little bit more nuts in short form. So like mm -hmm. I, I, I adore short form um, and uh, anthologies kept me alive when I couldn't get features made for years and years and years. And I had a blast with them, but um, they're, they're hard to support, you know, professionally it's hard to stay alive on anthologies and on shorts necessarily. And um I'd say features, you know, you, you get, you get the opportunity to like follow a character in greater detail and, um, and, and arc with the character and, and, and feel them change over the course of the movie. And that's kind of a deeper, you know, richer experience for, mm -hmm. for a filmmaker in many ways sure. and then exploration, you never know where it's going to land necessarily. So it kind of comes to life in front of you in collaboration with writers and the actor. Uh, the concept of the VHS really felt like something that they, could have kept doing every single year. It felt like a really great way to introduce 
new voices uh to get you know fresh directors in front of people in the in the genre were there conversations are you surprised that that sort of stopped becoming uh stopped becoming a thing in the anthology or do you have any insights into why it stopped becoming a thing uh oh i i i think it took a slight pause but uh, we're doing another one Oh, get out of here. It's coming out very soon. (laughs) Um, I was fortunate to uh, be a producer on it, but uh, um, put it together, but it's definitely a showcase of some return filmmakers and, um, and, uh, and some new voices as well, but it's called VHS 94. And uh, um, I think actually I probably shouldn't say, but it's uh, it'll be, it'll be out and about this fall sometime. Oh yeah. I'm really excited. Yeah. No V. We should be making VHS movies every year. I don't think it'll ever run out of steam. Yeah. I mean, found footage bite-sized is just too much fun, you know? And there's a, there's an attitude about VHS that I think is uh, always kind of welcome. Welcome. I mean, they're, they're fuck you movies. We used to say in some way, you know I mean? They just, they behaved, they obeyed no one and could just do whatever they wanted. There's just a kind of place for that on a Friday or Saturday night that you want to see. And I think, um, uh, the idea behind VHS 94 is like, that's the year. You could pick any year and be true to the technology of that year. And we could just, right. you know, audiences like it. We could just keep making them. Do you know where it's going to go? Uh, Shutter. Mm-hmm. Oh, is it really? Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. That's a good fit. Yeah. Um, David, so I was, I was a big fan of the, all the 80s monster movies. The ones that, that's really what I grew up watching, the Freddies and the Jasons and the Michaels and all that sort of stuff. And last year I put a piece together. Where I reached out to all these guys, found all these guys and brought them together for like a big interview. And, and one of my favorite guys that I got to speak with for that piece uh, was Doug Bradley who just told incredible stories about the set of Hellraiser and that, you know, people coming up and touching the pins and everything. He was just a great guy. Um, It's going to be interesting to think of, I can't imagine a Hellraiser movie without Doug Bradley around in some form or fashion. Can you tell me whether or not he's involved uh, with, with your new one at all? I mean, I can say almost, I will say almost nothing about Hellraiser at this point, only because it's still very, very early. You know, I can gush on the franchise, but it's, um, uh, at this point, I think it would, it would spoil audiences to get into anything too particular, you know, but, um, yeah, obviously like it's a, it's a dream come true to explore that world. And, um, uh, we are, we are definitely doing everything we can to be true to the themes of the original, but we are definitely not remaking the original movie, which I think has been misreported a little bit. You know, I don't think there's any remaking the 87 film. Mm. Um, so, uh, but yeah, Pinhead is, is is sacred cultural legacy and what Doug did with it is, um, you know, unparalleled. I think, um, you know, for us to remount this film uh, or reboot this franchise in like, you know, in 2022 or something is to, do something that harkens back to the original, but also, uh, and is true to the themes, but also we have to kind of open ourselves up to reimagining it to some degree and taking it in a direction that inspires us. We have to kind of make it our own. Is it exciting to see classic properties like that? In addition to the work that you're doing, like Candyman's coming back, you know, you're seeing a lot of these horror franchises get rejuvenated. Is that something you want to see keep happening? Because it is a good way for filmmakers to put a fresh stamp on something that we're all relatively familiar with. I think it really depends on the franchise. You know, I mean, a lot of the stuff from the eighties in particular had such a strong conceit that you just feel like we've got to give this a go again. Like there's more to be explored here. I think anything Barker would fall under that. I think there's such a unique universe that he creates, particularly with Hellraiser. I mean, myself as a fan, I just would be down to see anybody open the box again Mm. and give it a go. Um, uh, So uh, in that sense, 
uh, yeah, I think a lot, there's a lot of stuff that I dying to see what people will do with it. But um, there's other things that, I mean, I won't mention it in particular, but like there's other stuff that's probably played out a little bit, mm. um, you know, reboots, remakes that we've seen a thousand times before. But, uh, but no, I, horror always follows um, trends. It always echoes itself from an earlier time, you know, and for me in the eighties, you know, some of my favorite horror films, you know, or sci-fi horror films were remakes, you know, the thing in Cronenberg's yeah, yeah. fly Carpenter's thing. Yeah. Fly. I mean, these were movies that I discovered um, completely fell in love with only years later found out that they were, you know, um, uh, an attempt at something that had already yep. been attempted, mm-hmm. you know? So um, I, I think the spirit of reinvention, the spirit of remixes is, is, will always be welcome. You know, I do love that, that we're sort of in this era of, like you said, not not remakes, but continuing stories. I love this idea that Hellraiser is going to be continued. I love that Candyman is, is a continued story and Halloween the continuing. But then, like you said, there are some franchises where I'm not sure it would work. Like I think about about Nightmare and I don't know because if, you know, if, if Robert England's not available to come back, like, can you, you know, as much as I love Jack Earl Haley, like he wasn't Freddy Krueger. So in that sort of situation, do you sort of feel like that? might be done then because if you can't get Robert back, then you can't really continue that story. I don't know because I feel like nightmare on Elm street is one of the greatest horror ever conceptualized. You know, the Mm -hmm. idea that, you know, Freddie can get you when you fall asleep and that you have the Mm -hmm. added dilemma of knowing that if you fall into a dream state, you know, this guy's going to show up and horrible, horrible things are going to happen, um, hopefully with a comic undertone and that you don't necessarily know the moment that the dream begins. Mm. I mean, it's just so much fun to play with. There's a million different things you can do with it. Also, anytime you can get surrealism um, into the genre in some way or another, um, you're getting into a terrain where like anything can happen. Like a new filmmaker could come along and conceptualize a way to do Nightmare on Elm Street that would completely reinvigorate our idea of you know, how that's done or what that could be, whether or not you can recreate the direct iconography of Freddy Krueger, that's pretty challenging. You know, Um, you might have to ask the audience to look at Freddy Krueger in a slightly different way. That's true. That's interesting. And, and you hear, um, I, I don't imagine that that Nighthouse is, is lending itself to a franchise. I think it's kind of encouraging (laughs) without giving anything away necessarily. Uh, you know, you didn't design it, even though it's a, it's a ghost story to, to be a type of sequelized thing. But I guess, you know, nowadays people can reinvent themselves and, and take the concept and drop it someplace else. There's plenty of ways, I guess, that this story could go forward if they came back around to you. To be honest, we have never discussed it or thought about it. <laughs> You're right. It's not exactly, I don't want to give anything away about the movie, but I don't yeah. know where one goes. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, hopefully the film on its own will just stick with people. We'll see. Anything could happen. It certainly will. David, we can't thank you enough for uh, taking the time to sit down and speak with us. My pleasure. Yeah, I'm really excited for people to see this, man. It's really effective. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Uh, Great conversation. Yeah, appreciate it. it. All right. Thanks very much. We want to thank David Bruckner for being a guest on the show. You guys absolutely have to check out The Night House. Uh, It's just a really great ghost story, and Rebecca Hall gives one of her best performances uh, in this film. If you want to hear my longer, a little bit spoilery review of the uh, the film, make sure you check out episode number 178 of the Real Blend podcast, and, uh, you know, in addition to all the great stuff that we bring on that episode. So, uh, as I mentioned, keep it right here on your normal Real Blend feeds for plenty more interviews that are 
coming this week, including uh, David Lowry, the director of The Green Knight, and Amber Seeley, who has a film coming out called No Man of God, and plenty of other things that we have on the agenda coming up soon for all of you uh, Real Blend fanatics. So we'll talk to you later. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.